Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, coming to you from the isolation of our homes. Discomfort food, the blue revolution, hospital food, and full muscle product. Hi, Josh. Now, how are you doing? Hey, I'm all right, Mirella. It's uh, the heat is here now, which is sort of a nice thing. It's a bit of a nice change, but mostly because that means uh, strawberries are also here. And so that has been one of the most cheerful things about this week has been the strawberries. How are you? So the socks are off? Oh my God, the socks are off with so much joy. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I remember you saying that oh earlier. Oh my God, we are really happy. It's the truth. Oh, wow. I wish I could find some joy in this heat. But yeah, if I'm not up. in a lake, I'm not interested in the heat at all. It's the it truth, no isn't purpose, it? But I agree. But post-swim. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Sitting, I've been dreaming, actually, about sitting on a dock. Uh, you know, and that, that delight of all you have to do is even get a hot jump in the water, back out again like that. The laziness of those days is something I could really use right now. Yeah, with a nice cold beer. This is it, girl. This is it. Some guac, some homemade guac. And some oh, chips. homemade guac. This is the stuff of, of dreams. And all you have to think about is what you're going to put on the barbecue later on. Come on. That's right. <sighs> meanwhile. Always, always dream. Yeah. Indeed. So meanwhile, here we are. I read this article, which led me to discover this fine gentleman that mm. I had never heard of before i'm guessing you might be familiar with his work yes yes because um he seems to be very much on the radar within the industry mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. beloved um so the gentleman in question is his name is tunde way yes and i mean everything about him fascinates me i love I that he likes to serve discomfort food i know i know and articulates it as such right it's right great. And I also really love that what he's doing, really, a lot of it is performance art. Yes. Some, some might see it as activism. Uh, I come from an art background. And so, uh, you know, to me, I think it could be seen through either lens. I agree. Some of my favorite things that he did was uh, in New Orleans, where I believe he's currently living. I think so. He, he set up a, a lunch cart. And uh, he had separate prices for white people and black people. I know. People. No, like it's such a bold move. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I love, he had a, a sign out front. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, it said, it was a sandwich board. It said, this is more than lunch. This is an experiment. How can you impact racial wealth disparity? Mm. So he really makes made it clear, you know, what, what the... The performance or the, yep. the pop. Yeah, being tricked, or right. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that is even more daring is he set up a, a pop-up in Nashville where he served Nashville hot chicken. Have you experienced Yes, a Nashville hot brown, yes. Well, okay. not in Nashville. I've, I've, oh, I've experienced okay. a replica outside, but I've never been to Nashville. Oh, I, I experienced it last year. That's a, that's a story for a separate occasion. All right, all right. It's definitely say, on the list. Yeah. It's hot. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he served a Nashville hot chicken. It was free for black residents. Okay. And then uh, white diners who showed up had to pledge uh, hundreds and thousands of dollars. Right. Just for, just for a piece or two. 
And remind um, us, how, do, we, do we have follow-up on how that went and, and whether what level of white patronage there was at that pop-up? I have not found that information. Okay. I've, okay. I've found a lot of descriptions of the mood at the event and, you know, everyone sort of figuring out what was going on. Right. And I do know that it was very well received. Okay. Um, so he seems to really have this knack. That's wonderful. I love that. Very, uh, well, uncomfortable things, right? It, it is mm -hmm. discomfort food uh, in a way that uh, that leads people to think. Yes. And, you know, which are, are all good art does, right? Indeed. And, and uh, good activism too, right? I love, the, I love the notion of the plate being a forum for this mega conversation, right? That's clearly right up my alley. And, and, it's, and for him to just be brave enough to do it is amazing. Yes. So what I wanted to talk about today was the crux of this article, which was yes. the fact that he has put forward this idea that, that, that we should just let the restaurant industry yeah. die. I know. That, you know, the idea of coronavirus ending and us just going back to the way things were before, which is what most of the industry would like, mm -hmm. is, is not worth it. And uh, he has some some pretty strong views about it, but I he really does to know your thoughts. Yeah, he uh, really especially does. Especially in light of our conversation with uh, Hassel two episodes ago about right. all of the problems that are really, uh, you know, the mental health issues and the security issues that are prevalent in the industry. It's a, it is a real thing, uh, and I will confess that when I when I read I've read, I read this piece a couple of times now, but when mm -hmm. I first read it, I was just like, "Buddy, we can't do that. Come on, how many people's lives will lie in the wake? Like, what are the costs of just letting it die? Because it's right, and because it's personal for me, it's my friends, right? Yeah. It's my people whose restaurants I've helped promote and and patron. You know what I mean? I'm like, and it's a huge part of our culture, and so that feels really alarmist right i'm like how I, i'm just really alarmed by that it's not alarmist um but i am really uh but when it's you think about statement. it it's a very let dramatic it statement. Yes. it's a lot right um, it's not let's change right precisely let it die um but it's like you can see the the thinking behind it though right because essentially is the idea that like accelerate the destruction so as to bring the change and the rebirth that much sooner mm -hmm. right i I, re I think that that is really the spirit behind it and under, take advantage know? of this moment which has already started this this is it right not this necessarily is it. destruction but cer certainly a decline Right. And, and it's, it's, an, it's a compelling thought to sort of shift our efforts from attempting to rescue and, you know what I mean? And like first aid or triage, this, this, you know, this declining thing yeah. and, and let it just naturally come to an end and focus more energy on what the rebuild needs to look like. Right. It is, if ideologically it is very compelling. Uh, right. And it makes a lot of sense. So one of the things this really reminded me of was this uh, sort of like a, a parallel argument that I see in the community food security space, right? Where there are a bunch of people who really believe that what we need to do is shut down food banks completely, oh, right? Wow. And, and devote all of the resources that we would have spent towards food banks, towards advocacy for things like uh, basic general income, higher social assistance rates, um, and, and, and more general community food security. Right. Uh, and that we just stop the band aid, right? Because essentially, so a food eliminate bank is a the actual need. 
Precisely. Yeah. And just figure out the root issue for what forces people to stand in that lineup every month. Uh, and so I, the, the parallels are quite similar and, yeah, and it's, that's, it's compelling uh, that's exactly thinking, what he's saying, right? Cause, uh, his point is that if w- the government gives the restaurant industry, the bailouts that it's requesting, then the restaurant industry will just go back to the way it was before. Right. And the main issue he's identified is exactly the same one you're, you're talking about. And that in the context of hospitality, it's the fact mm-hmm. that, uh, hospitality is often seen as, you know, a safety net for people who, in other words, a place people who might otherwise not be able to find a job, people who yeah. perhaps are un- uh, undocumented or people with a, with a criminal background uh, can often still get a job in the hospitality industry. Right. And his whole point is, you know, that's, it's, it's great, but the whole industry is built around the fact that uh, you know these, they can. I don't. I don't want to say they can take advantage of these people, but you know that these people uh, are you know eager to be there, and they're still, but they're oh, still underpaid, and they're still. Right. Um, and so his whole point is the same as what you were outlining for the food banks: is the you know the money should go to social assistance programs and helping these people out, so that. Uh, anyone who's working in the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry is doing it because uh, they really want they really right. want to be there, and anyone who who you know can can take on the job that they that they want and not you know the the only option that they have, which puts them in a very precarious position. It does, and one of the things that I wonder about is the the ripple out to other areas like. Right. We see a lot of aspiring artists uh, working in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that practice exists. Actors, yeah. uh, exactly. Right. So what yeah. happens? Right. If if now the, the tenor of these jobs has changed. Right. And there and, and the hospitality industry potentially changes from being this sort of say in this public safety net. Uh, what's going to happen to those other folks? I mean, that's one piece. And and I'm sure we can all be creative enough to figure this out. Um, but in addition, something something that I feel like I can't turn away from with this argument is is the impact piece, right? Because while the the level of destruction that will be required to get from where we are now to this new version of our industry, it's mega, right? The mm-hmm. what will lie in the wake. At the same time, we as as sort of members of this industry make the argument that the reason we need a bailout, a, uh, an industry specific bailout, is because we are the only industry that employs so many diverse networks of people and that there's like an efficiency connected to like you know f- yeah. support bail out the hospitality industry and you will automatically bail out florists and linen you know what i mean and beer and you know breweries and you know and that and mm-hmm. farmers and that sort of thing um and so i still feel like that's a compelling argument however maybe maybe it works on the other way maybe we can say if we really want to fix this problem focus on the hospitality, you know, focus on, on actually rebuilding this thing so that that's, those new ideas can actually ripple out to all those industries as well. I mean, uh, it's very, it's very positive idealist thinking, but maybe, maybe that's what we need right now, you know? For sure. I'm, you know, I don't know how, you know, how serious he is mm-hmm. when he says, let it die, you know, in terms of he, you how see, possible in the piece, that is. 
he pushes um, back on the language a little bit. He's yeah. he's always like, I don't, I don't quite mean it that. You know, it's more of a metaphor. Yeah. And, and, he, and he's looking ahead to the phoenix rising from the ashes, right? Because mm-hmm. um, he's also part of this industry. Yes, right? he's got something to lose, exactly. Um, um, and, you know, there's no easy solution, but I think it's definitely a really interesting conversation to start having. And, you know, maybe they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Maybe and some assistance for the industry would be uh, welcome because uh, you raise a really good point with all of the other people who depend on exactly. the industry. That would be yeah. a, a big problem. But then also focus some energy on, you know, government programs that can can help. Uh, and I think that I think that the, the real wealth of this piece and and Tunde Wei's perspective is the really sharp reminder that restoring the way things were before the pandemic hit is should not be our goal. Yes. Right. It was not working on so many levels. Uh, and so we we as as members of the industry, I think, need to be courageous enough to actually acknowledge that. Joshna, I read this article that has me thinking in all kinds of different directions. Yes. I really wanted to share it with you and see mm-hmm. uh, which thoughts it brought up for you as well. But um, this article is it written in criticism of uh, the Indian government's program called Blue Revolution. Right. And this is a program that uh, there's two sides to it. First of all, they really want to address malnutrition issues in the country and specifically uh, anemia and protein deficiency. And they also want to help fish farmers prosper. So what they've decided to do is to uh, invest a lot to help um, their local fish farmers do well and then use that uh, seafood to address this malnutrition mm-hmm. issue. And the person who wrote the article was essentially pointing out that, you know, while the spirit is wonderful, uh, our oceans are being pillaged right now and it's yes. probably the worst place to to look for a solution right and you know some of the uh the statistics that this article pulled out i, mean, I couldn't i mean i know that the oceans are a big problem and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we are uh it's definitely you know everyone's talking about overfishing you know, the, the, and oh are they yeah well i'm hearing more about you know the carbon footprint of beef and should we oh yes yes chicken? of course of course yes. um and then you know i'm still seeing if you want to be healthy, eat chicken and fish. Right? Everyone wants yeah. to uh, still be able to eat their fish. Um, but he was talking about uh, unseasonable weather in Canada just for a few weeks resulted in the loss of 2.6 million fish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they had to clean out. Yeah. What a sad salmon it was, I think, right? Yes. It was uh, Atlantic salmon. Yeah. And then also talking about the fact that 90% of wild fisheries are classified as overfished or harvested at maximum capacity. Right. And that this is what's pushing, I didn't realize this, but this is what's pushing fishing into unregulated areas, which is yeah. where we get this problem that I'm sure you've, you've heard about, the mislabeled fish. Oh, yes. Apparently 44% of fish oh in, i did not know it was as high as countries 44. like ours are 
are mislabeled because you know there's this huge demand for fish Mm -hmm. and there's nowhere to get it so that was all pretty depressing to read very it is very doomy scenario uh, and especially, I mean, I, I was I was curious about the Indian context, and then it all kicked in, of course, uh, which is the fact that the India is uh, is virtually all coastline, right? Right, the, that narrow pointed triangle, the peninsula, right, of that country, uh, is really what had you know, and fish and seafood are a huge part uh, mm-hmm. of the Indian diet, obviously. Um, and so, I I will honestly tell you that this. This fits with what I have been hearing about about the water and the state of affairs of the water. So mm-hmm. many um, in the sort of the last couple of years, food conferences or you know a global sort of scenarios where we as food people as chefs get together, the conversation is really has substantially shifted from the land to the water. That's really encouraging right? to hear. Where everybody's like, no, 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 no. We the, the local farming and the organic like that is uh, clearly that that problem's not solved. Yeah. But the emergence of the issue around the water is really uh, has really has a stronghold, and it's and it's what I love is that there's a lot of talk about even just changing our language and making sure that the water is included in our conversations around sustainability uh, and more ecological stewardship. Right is is the way we talk about uh, how we use the land, mm-hmm. um, right? And our our very beloved David Suzuki. Uh, I believe has forecasted that in just another ten years is all that's left. Really, for, for getting for for us to be able to harvest uh, proper edible things out of the water. Yes. Oh my goodness. Right, and and look, I, I tend I would tend to trust a man like David Suzuki. Um, yeah. But it, it is um, it is a real issue, uh, and and I actually love your connection to the advice of the dietetic world, because I think well, that they are the more culpable than they are being pointed at for, you know? Cause th- what I'm seeing is, you know, people who are trying to eat healthy, definitely, you know, cutting down on red meat. Yes. Um, and you know, there are many di- different reasons people change their diets, but you know, I'm still hearing a lot of people who, you know, Oh, well I don't eat meat, but I do eat fish. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, And the advice for a nice lean piece of fish. Right. Mm. Or on the other side of things, the advice for the good uh, essential fatty acids that everybody wants out of the salmon. Yeah. Right. Part of our we have sort of a global obsession about about substituting every steak with a piece of salmon. Mm -hmm. uh, Right. Which is what has us in the crazy scenario we're in, uh, whereby we are now farming salmon and feeding salmon corn. Right, yeah. it, which is generally the most or ridiculous. Soy, isn't some fish fed soy as well. Uh, for sure, right whatever now. those commodity crops are, right, between yeah. the corn and the soy, uh, just to keep it moving. Because all we all we know is that the diet, you know, a dietitian or or someone in a you know white lab coat, right, uh, or or some other sort of health advisor has said, uh, have a good piece of fish, uh, and we're soon going to run out of that fish, right? It's really, yeah, it's and, really, you know, alarming. everyone's talking about, you know, maybe we should think about just having beef once a week, or maybe we should think about, right. you know, less beef, but I'm not hearing anyone saying fish just once a week, you know, everyone's yeah, it's true. Um, so Which that is, was one of the places yeah. my mind went. Yeah. And I'm so encouraged to hear that within the industry, the alarm bells are, are going definitely, off and that definitely. it's being talked about. Here's where my alarm bells went off. I don't know if you caught this little fun tidbit, (laughs) but uh, the author was also talking about uh, their real issues with viruses 
in these fish farming population Ooh. and a potential for zoonoses. Oh, and we know what zoonoses are now. Yes. Uh, so our next, you know, COVID situation yep. could come from fish. Well, and it's, it makes perfect sense. Food. It makes perfect sense because it's the same sort of intensified, you know, mass production driven attitude, but that's just happening in the water versus the land. Yeah. Right. Because we, we had a conversation uh, previously, you know, earlier on in pandemic times about the link between factory farming and the emergence of these um, zoonoses or these, these novel viruses. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So it's the same vibe. It's just now about this, intensified um it's because essentially there we have factory farms out of the water there right it's, yeah. just, it's pretty much the same scenario but, uh, you know i'd rather us not get to that point before we address the and, situation and maybe there's something to learn from the current moment <laughs> friends right yeah, but there's maybe there's something about something. the ocean that's it's there's something about it that's out of sight out of mind definitely a lot of people definitely uh and that's unfortunate um, so here's the other thing I wanted to touch on with this yes. article, because the solution that was then proposed was lab-grown fish, investing in lab-grown meats. Can you imagine the country with uh, arguably some of the longest coastline of any other nation will then invest itself in lab-grown fish and seafood? My goodness. What a, that's a real state of affair. The, you know, it's a real, paints a picture it, of the story, right? So here's where I got stuck. Yeah. So uh, you have mentioned in the past that you were raised on a, a mainly vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and did that include fish? Uh, yes. I mean, and we ate, my dad was more of a meat eater and my mom was more yeah. of a vegetarian, a veg eater. Uh, fish was definitely included, but we didn't eat it very often. But you've you have in the past mentioned that this was a sort of a traditional way. Oh yeah, of yeah. eating definitely from um, yes, and and I think <laughs> I now I'm going to share where you're heading here is that Indian culture uh, and Indian food traditions are probably the easiest, most satisfying way to be a vegetarian. So right? so, so this is where I got yes stuck because I know that you're you know you come via yeah. South Africa and so sure. on and so forth so I wasn't sure where these traditions were picked yep. up but my Fair. understanding was that uh it was the traditional Indian cuisine Definitely. that you were brought up with that was mainly yep. vegetarian so would you say that the most of your proteins then came from fish or or from no uh most legumes? of them would have would have come from um definitely legumes I was curious about this myself Right? My, when my I, thought when I read is, this, why not focus on I was that? like, why are we not just eating dal? I don't understand why we'll choose to make some, you know, weird fish in the test tube when we can't just eat dal, okay. right? right? I was like, uh, wait a minute, we know how to do this, people. What's happening here? And so my first thought is that we there must be a, some other emergence around distancing people from that kind of home cooking, mm -hmm. you know, because, because there are lots and lots of reports of India emerging as this, you know, the middle class emerges and more people are working and packaged foods and fast foods have really sort of enjoyed major, major spikes in popularity uh -huh. that maybe there's some connection with the fact that everyday, you know, home cooking is not the thing that it might have been. I yeah. mean, I still don't I'm get it because fair, India... I'm not for a varied diet. I just feel that 
if the yeah. real issue is anemia and pro- protein deficiency without touching the ocean, there are easier, more obvious solutions right. than let's lab grow then some let's lab grow fish. white fish. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I don't get it either. I, uh, there's something else happening there. And I think, I don't know. Now I'm very, now I need to do some research. I feel like I'm going to follow up once I do some research and really figure out what's actually happening. So we all know that a stay in the hospital and the food that is served is a, is a wholeheartedly dismal situation. Uh, but I just heard this piece about somebody in the hospital during quarantine. And the thought of that like just made my heart race. I thought, oh my God, if all of us are enjoying the delight of all these wonderful things that we're cooking and baking, what is it like for this poor for these poor suckers? I'm sure there are many people who are stuck in the hospital during quarantine. Can you imagine a whole more right. horrible thing? And not only that, but five weeks. Five weeks. Five weeks of hospital food. And as you mentioned, with quarantine not being able to you know, pop out. This and is it. Grab, or get visitors or right. Uh, <sighs> a different kind of food. Oh, that's true. Or have someone bring in. Yes. Food sure. just relegated to hospital food for five. It weeks. is dismal. Right. So this woman had posted uh, about it. She's Irish uh, and she posted her photos, which I love. Right. I, as you can imagine, I collect these photos. They get sent to me all the time. Um, and these are choice like they are shining light examples of these awful awful meals i'm gonna be honest some of it looked like dog food yes of course um, it did and it's some of it looked away. like dog food with overcooked pasta in it oh and when you can tell from a picture that pasta is overcooked right it's serious that's a next level mushiness. right and the like uh and the like you see there was like three or four different types of noodles and shapes Underneath, like the sort of jungle juice pasta collection, who knows where and what and with no intention. Yeah, uh, it was. And the thing that I noticed, so you, you noticed all those photos. There's so much uh, smear on the plates, right? Everything is really jostled around and looking really haphazard. Um, and yeah. the sto- right, the story that that tells is the story of these retherm boxes, right? Because these things are plated up and trade and then these boxes get plugged in to bring everything up to temperature. But the journey that they have to take down these hallways and then up these elevator rides has the trays swinging back and forth, which is what makes, uh, which is what presents this like sloshed out, really careless sort of tray in front of people, right? Everything was moved to a corner of the plate. (laughs) Uh, The most poignant piece for me of this whole article was the fact that this woman has cystic fibrosis and she, her diet has a huge impact on her health. Right. She mentioned she's supposed to be eating more, like larger quantities. She has a lot of food. She did, she did mention that she's picky, but she also has food sensitivities and very real issues she has to deal with. And so this, can, can we use the term malnourishment? A hundred percent. Is that is that too aggressive? Not at all. Okay. I call so, it edible food-like substances. It's it's so totally fair. It's not just her morale that's being impacted here. It's you know a very real threat to her health. And yes, it was interesting to see. She said in some hospitals they have a special chef for the right cystic for the CF patients. Yeah, wing wing because I mean anything you can do to uh, 
um, to help these people stay healthy is important. But, you know, uh, I'm sure you will agree with me that it's not just the cystic fibrosis wing that needs a new. No, <laughs> not at all. It's such a it is such a sadness. I mean, already you, I'm railing against hospital food in a large way. But just the the acute intensity of being stuck in there during quarantine when health crises are such an issue um, and to have no comfort in something that you eat to be, you know, be sort of forced into the indignity of this, never mind detrimental therapeutic impact, because it's just not the right thing for you to be eating. Mm -hmm. uh, it is my I really felt for her. We actually had a little Twitter interaction because she posted something and somebody else tagged me in it. Oh, nice. Um, and so we had a little back and forth chat uh, and she had a lot of angry things to say about the chefs and the cooks in the kitchen, right? She was convinced that it was that they didn't care enough. And I am sure this sloshy plating uh, informed some of that because it just looks like the, the human who, who was involved did not care at all about what they were doing. Um, and right, so I, except right. I know from reading your book that that's not necessarily not at all the case and no. that a lot of people are in the kitchen feel equally depressed about the situation that's and are it. doing the the best that they can under the circumstances within, That's you know, it. the budgets and the regulations and the crazy the reconfigured decisions. kitchens yeah. that are just, uh, what are those heating things called again? Retherm units. So the, you know, the retherm yeah. units. Yeah, it's a very real problem. But I, I have to say, uh, she did manage to, with the photo essay, to make it, you know, somewhat entertaining. She did. And she and still got a sense of humor about yeah, it, too, a, which is, a, God bless her. A great way to get the word out there. I, thanks for pointing that article out. I, I think so. Great. Thanks. Thanks. All right, Morella, this one's a little bit silly, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also curious. Uh, I found this piece. I'm not sure if you heard the fanfare when it was released but popeye's chicken which is a very popular american or you know owned fast food chain i think like last year sometime released a chicken sandwich and america lost their minds everybody cannot stop talking about the popeye's chicken sandwich and you so, might be shocked to learn that it was not on my radar at all yeah, right <laughs> although i remember that it didn't kfc the last chicken sandwich i remember that made a a fuss was the KFC sandwich where the outside was the, the bun was the, the double down. It was like, it was yeah. called the double down. Which like I still two haven't chicken tried. thighs yes. were the bun. Exactly. Okay. So, so I understand uh, and I know what Popeye's is. So. Right. Uh, and so I, with the rest of my food community, everyone was like, what is such a big deal about this chicken sandwich? People went over to the U S and ate it and told stories of this magical sandwich. Uh, so then I found this piece that talked about Popeye's efforts uh, and what they're doing to bring this sandwich to Canada. Right mm -hmm. now is the time, and they have decided uh, that it's coming to Canada. So this the piece that I found has this like painstaking detail about the right kind of pickles and the right bun and the whatever. And listen, I have to honestly tell you, I sensed a little. Um, I wasn't in love with the sort of quiet suggestion that the Canadian market was a sort of like hinterland, and nobody, you know, they were like not sure whether they would find pickles and buns. Right. Because I was like, guys, we have some pickle, like, please, right? <laughs> uh, also hilarious that they were like, they said that uh, sourcing everything in Canada was a cheaper option than importing it all from the U.S. Yes. Right? And I was like, yes, sure. If that's, if that's what it takes to focus on locally sourced food, Popeyes, uh, amazing. 
But the thing I love the most was this amazing, like, twisting of the idea, right? Because they were suggesting that they would still uh, use their U.S. chicken mm-hmm. because uh, they only use, quote, full muscle product, which is like my favorite line from this whole story. Yeah, well, it just means that they're not grinding up the chicken. Exactly, right? right? They want the whole breast and they uh, can grow the chickens to the required specs. Can in I just the tell you? Yeah. I just read that. And every time I read something like that now, my I just this alarm bell rings in the back of my head. Zunos, Zunos. Zunos. We're, we're making all these chickens so this that they're identical. Right? The viruses, you know, you know, wash through them. And yes. That's all and, I can and, think now. Yes, and we remain and, at home. And they're, and they're bragging about it, right? This is exactly it, my friend. This is exactly it. We see the cycle now, right? Yeah. Because we all stuck at home wanting Popeyes to deliver us chicken sandwiches. Right? It goes it goes around in circles. And it needs to be uh, that perfect, uh, as you said, uh, what, what was it? One full piece. muscle product. Full muscle product, yes. Right? It's really, really interesting uh, to see that they're like, your Canadian farms are not good enough. Our American farms are better because we can grow to spec a 200 gram chicken breast. Oh my goodness. Right now. Funnier bit though, was other curiosities of the Canadian market. Right. Which I love the, f- I love the fact that when they tested it, cause it's launching in Edmonton first. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that when they did some market research and some, and some focus group testing, they discovered that Canadians need a slice of tomato, right? And, we need, we, and we need some lettuce and tomato on our That sandwich. gave me hope. Here's uh, the first thing that struck me about this article. I have to say, because, um, you know, they're, they're, this sandwich is four ingredients, right? The bun, the chicken, the pickles, and the sauce. Right. And they carefully, carefully tested each one in Canada to make sure that whatever they were sourcing locally was was identical to the original and it brought me back to episode 18 when we were talking about the corn where people were growing new varieties of corn and putting zero effort into the sensory space right how it tastes like that's right and i thought first of all how fascinating that you know there's so much more effort in fast food than Mm -hmm. there is in the the raw ingredients like vegetables Uh, (laughs) and secondly that I just found it entertaining because at the end of the day, you're just plugging holes. You know, if more, if more time and attention was put into the actual taste of the raw ingredients, then perhaps it wouldn't be so tricky to, right. to make the to end product, exactly. to, you know, take an entire year to match for is, ingredients. Right? You know, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed when you go to uh, countries that have, you know, a brighter, for me, like when I'm on the Mediterranean like just a tomato tastes like so much better. You oh. know, the growing conditions can really result uh, in huge flavor varieties within the exact same thing. I just, it just, I found it entertaining. You know, it is maybe- it really, and it just, it's a great bit of evidence about how tunneled we can get in this world of industrial food and thinking of food as products. Yeah. Right. And just, these are the specs. You cannot satisfy my requirements. These are, you know, this is done. Who cares what Mother Nature has to say? I love it. But what I thought was really fascinating was this description. I don't know if you saw, I think it was a woman from a, a it was a, a food critic in the US. And she talked about this high amplitude balance of salt, 
fat sharpness and softness that occurs when you put all of these four ingredients together. Critic who said that the New York Times food critic, and it it made me realize what they've achieved with this combination of ingredients is a bliss point. Yes, right. Remember we're talking about that bliss point. Totally. So early on in our time. Yes, yes, yes. And it was very interesting to me because we talked about the bliss point in the context of like you know a soft drink, you know making it that giving it that perfect balance. Or, but there's also this other idea that you can combine four ingredients Mm. together to reach a a bliss point once they are assembled. And I think that's the engineering behind this sandwich. Yes, because clearly, I mean, if it took them four years to match the ingredients, they put some thought into this sandwich. Let's face it. They clearly they did, right? Clearly they did. So, uh, and, and this is making me super curious now to try it. Mm-hmm. This idea that the bliss point has been achieved with the core ingredients. I, I might That's even it. issue the, you know, the lettuce and tomato, which are so important to me, just to, you know, be able to taste the original sandwich. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.